So what do you think of the issue? It's amazing. It's it's massive. It, you can see it from space. It's epic. Just spent the last hour reading it, and it's just wall to wall big hits. I don't know where to start. Yeah, that, that's. I think we've got the formula right. I think the um, when Harry set out the new editorial policy, I think that's um, that's that's what's doing it. Uh, I, I've got to say, um, yeah, uh, I, I felt the same way as I was reading it. So some of the um, so we, we do them in order. I mean, the first piece was done by me. It was it was just a, a small startup piece, but I was interested, Harry. You went around. So what did you think of the idea of solid oxide fuel cells? Uh, going toe-to-toe with hydrogen. Yeah, no, it was interesting. It was interesting to see, um, first it was interesting to see you make this distinction between solid oxide fuel cells and hydrogen because there was quite a lot, can often be quite a lot of overlap between the two. I know um, how the tops are very, very engaged in the two, but I think it's it's really interesting to see the idea that we could have one unit used for sort of the, the back and forth in terms of the charging and discharging using hydrogen. Uh, I mean, it certainly seems like a more logical way to go forward if the efficiencies can be made. And if you've got um, these these sort of startups like Noon that you're talking about going forward, then I think that is something really exciting. And I think if you've got the potential to eliminate the potential issues we've got around hydrogen as an energy carrier, which then that's, again, something that if, if it can be done economically will be something that's really, really, really important and could very much start to compete with hydrogen. Obviously, hydrogen, it has got a bit of a head start in terms of economies of scale, in terms of excitement. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting story. I mean, I don't think, you know, as you say, Head Start, with, to me, the best technology doesn't always win. It can be the first technology to be addressed. It can be the one with most money behind it. And clearly, right now, the, the technology of choice in the energy market is battery. And hydrogen is, is a second rolling wave behind that, you know, five years behind. And this is five years behind that. It's very difficult for one to unseat the other, but it was still, I just thought, um, a really interesting idea. And Chris Graves, I haven't really come across. So I, I read about 10 or 15 of his papers going back into the sort of dark ages. And he, he's obviously grown up with this idea that he was doing it in a fossil fuel world. And, and the, the one thing he hadn't quite done is eliminate all the fossil fuel out of any business model that he was working towards. And then suddenly he has, and, and it's showed by the nature of the investors that they've come from the uh, solar energy market. And I just, the one thing that the disquiet I had was the idea that all these big CO2 cauldrons underground would suddenly accidentally release into the atmosphere and we would have the same problem again. <laughs> I got the impression, of course, that isn't the idea that, that CO2 is just literally a holding pattern for um, oxidization of of that uh, of, uh, of of carbon monoxide and uh, and the iron that it. Uh, uh, I don't know about the efficiency. I mean, he claims it's more efficient than hydrogen. Maybe it is. That won't be the the thing that tells it in the end. It will be who puts the money behind it. And, and right at the other end of the scale, the next story, I was very impressed with the Fortescue story. Well, I'm very impressed both with the story that you wrote, but also with them as an organisation. You know, they're, they're at the dirty end of the di- uh, dirty kind of business. And they seem to be absolutely uh, hell bent on, on reaching net zero emissions. Yeah, I very much double took when I saw it in the um in the news. I mean, the, the world's fourth largest mining company, which which you wouldn't normally associate with a company that's going to be really aiming to become um sort of clean in the near future, and saying that they're going to reach net zero emissions by 2030 um is sort of 20 years ahead of the rest of the industry. And the rest of the industry really are only sort of following what what national targets are saying. So it really is a statement of intent for them to sort of actually start to decarbonize industry really. And I think obviously 
if it follows anything like we've seen in the automotive sector over the past few months, Enforcer Key's announcement will be followed quickly by BHP and by um, Rio Tinto. It will be something. Will be one of those things where it really starts to snowball in terms of industry ramping up their own targets. Um, I thought BHP would be the Exxon Mobil of the group. You know, they, no, no, we we're going to we're going to stay where we are. Thanks very much. Yeah, and it, it will be interesting to see whether or not they can get away with that. I think um, there's really starting to be a a green premium that people are happy to pay on top of um, certain commodities if there if if there is this guarantee that they've been sourced renewably. Obviously, Forsecu's focus is iron ore, which um, is the primary sort of thoughts behind that is that it's going to go towards decarbonising the steel sector. Um, the actual mining behind steel counts for around a fifth of its total emissions. So it's it's a material impact that we'll see on emissions from steel making in the next 10 years. And the, the promise that Forsecu is going to start making its own hydrogen for 2023 and that this hydrogen will start to sort of trickle down and sort of the downstream production methods of steel making um, could actually see that realized to a much higher degree and i think the amount See, of initiative- I, I think there's one real message that comes out of this and i think this is what fortescue have got and uh, it'd be interesting to find out why they've got it but it, and and that is that if you move early you've got a chance of doubling your market share you know yeah and, and if you embrace energy transition early and i think that everyone's got to get that message if you're in the in the early group that attacks these problems properly that there's a good chance you'll come out of it really a much more profitable and healthy company than you went into it. Yeah, I mean, what's great to see is that their their chairman, uh, Andrew Forrest, he's he's very much along the lines of what we've been saying, Rethink Energy, and in the fact that he's aware of sort of, he's called a violent shift towards green energy, which it very much will be um, in the next sort of few years. And I think that's, it's really good to see from someone so high up in a company like that. Um, I mean, often we see these sort of CEOs just sort of going along with the government target. Right, I want you to reach out to um, Andrew Forrest, and I want you to uh, on LinkedIn, and and I just want you to interview him, and I want you to record it, and and I want us to put it out um, because I'm sure he has many interesting visions, and we can record it on Teams and put it out as a video because it he probably is. I mean, we saw it in Hydrola, we see it in NL, we see a, a new guy takes control of a company and they embrace renewables, those companies 10 years ago. But mining groups now, oh, that's impressive. And yeah, isn't he the founder, actually, as well? Wouldn't his name be Fortescue? Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's the uh, four in Fortescue. But another interesting thing about this is that... Um, when, when I when, when this first came into the news a year ago, I thought, oh, well, they're, they're talking about doing it in various places worldwide. And I thought, well, maybe it'll just be an offset. It's like, yeah, we still have this really polluting operation, but we've got some renewable energy in another country. Some trees, yeah. But but actually what they're talking about in Harry's article is um, developing a ship design des- powered by green ammonia. They've got large battery technology for haul trucks that they want to do, hydrogen fuel cells for drill rigs, that kind of thing. So it's actually directly in their operations. The ship design for uh, run on green ammonia isn't such a big step, though. I mean, it, you, you can actually just suck out the, the, the uh, bunker fuel and put in ammonia and it will run for most ships. But, but, but I mean, it's, it's nice that they've said it. Uh, and the, they're also their operations, their mining is in the Pilbara which has also been the same place uh, nearby on the coast where we've seen these huge plans for some of the some of Australia's solar plus hydrogen, green hydrogen, um, like giga complexes, the 15 yeah. gigawatt stuff. 
to export to Japan and places like that. So they're used to recruiting people and running them out into the Pilbara and getting them out there and getting work out of them and getting them home again. And they're used to that whole process. So it'd be a natural extension that instead of taking truck drivers, we've got to drive. In fact, aren't they the company? And we'd have to look this up. But aren't they the company who started autonomous driving trucks? because they couldn't get truck drivers to drive out uh, into their mining areas and bring and bring the ore back. Something we could look up. But I'm fairly, certainly Australia has autonomous driving trucks in, in, uh, in uh, mining. And I, I think that, you know, we could look into that and find out who designed those because it's, that is thinking ahead of the time. So he, uh, he took control of Fortescue in uh, 2003. So he's been there for a while. Right, but, but let's kind of be interesting to see his hear his version of how he took control mm. and uh, and how he got uh, renewables because that would be I think an inspiring story. I'll just move on, just doing this in order, Volkswagen. Again, it's another thing I wrote. I, I was not at all convinced by Volkswagen. I, I, I see a lot wrong with their drift into um, they they think they can build batteries 50% cheaper. They're going to have 70% of their cars in Europe run on battery by 2030, 50% worldwide. It's, it's a lukewarm commitment. Um, they, they make a lot of noises about being ahead of the game. We, we used to have this idea that if someone says, oh, I've got a unique new proposition or a new, unique new product, the, the way you would write it as a journalist is, oh, I'm the last one to arrive at the party because they have to use the word unique all the time. And then this is exactly what this stunk of, that they're saying, oh, yeah, we are the ones that are, um, that are embracing electric vehicles. But the truth is, they're the last to embrace electric vehicles. And then the following day, BMW embraced electric vehicles in much the same half-hearted way. This is, this is because of the European Union has made these laws, and they are following along. But it means that the stampede, I use that expression, turns into an avalanche. I know it's mixing my metaphors, but it, it, literally no one, none of the large companies is left that hasn't made a commitment to, to being mostly EVs by sometime soon. So, uh, and there'll be more in the coming weeks and months as, as some of the smaller companies down the line make, make this, the strategies clear. It's just part of the same thing we've been saying all along, EVs happening sooner than everyone realises. One thing we should do, uh, is we should do a, a forecast on uh, the actual char recharges because it's fairly easy from all these statements to pin together everybody's claims about how many recharge stations they're going to create, add it all together, work out how many um, cars that we, we, from our forecast uh, they're going to have, and see if it's enough, and see if there's um, and how quickly they they could be installed. So. I think that's um, that's another forecast we could get into. And then that brings us to the Hindenburg strikes again, uh, Harry. I think when Hindenburg came around the first time, I was very sceptical as a country a company. I think I personally really like Nikola, uh, which is obviously the company that uh, Hindenburg sort of took down first when they were sort of claiming that the CEO, Trevor Milton, was making false claims about the technology. And I got, with it, I suppose I got probably a little bit protective about Nikola. So when I saw the announcement about the Lordstown, it was very much thinking, yeah, it will be much the same. Lordstown will, will be fine. But to be honest, the claims that Hindenburg have been making sort of seem to have stuck. The centre of the arguments around this, this 100,000 order book that Lordstown's been sort of banging on about, um, uh, and their CEO has uh, referred to them very serious orders in the past. Um, but when you, and what Hindenburg has done is sort of really drilled down into them and actually analysed them on a sort of an uh, investment, uh, investment basis. And within these orders, you've got 
I mean, 14,000 from a company called E-Squared Energy, which operate from a small sort of apartment in Texas. So, it's, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very small company. They operate no sort of electric vehicle fleet. They operate no vehicle fleet. So there's a lot of, sort of question marks around that. I mean, there's other orders that where CEOs have very much said, we signed this sort of pre-order, but we actually have no intention of buying the vehicle. And yeah, I mean, it's sticking. I mean, the... Um, the CEO of Lawstown's come out and said that he didn't think that anyone thought that these were real orders, but he'd very much made it look like in the press that they were real orders. And it's very much been a way that they've been able to sort of raise capital and raise investor confidence around the company. So that's why we've seen Lawstown actually really garnering a lot of attention. I mean, we've seen General Motors as one of the companies that's invested. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of worry around around Lawstown. And I mean, there's other things that like they're saying that the the vehicles won't actually be ready in September. They're sort of three or four ways, uh, three or four years away from production. So there's there's a big list of things in this Hindenburg report that. So I think they've always said they were three or four years away from scale production. But are, are, are you talking about prototypes not being ready? Are you talking about actually uh, production lines? I think they're talking about appropriate prototypes. Um, I, I think the production lines for Lost Town isn't so much of an issue when uh, they've been given, basically gifted this manufacturing facility from General Motors, which is pretty much ready to go. And I think that really helped them sort of accelerate their, their timeline. But what we're seeing is that the lack of sort of validation they've been able to do and the fact that a lot of their testings ended up in vehicles catching fire um that's really meaning that they actually could be much they're not as far down the line as they're they're making it seem in the press when we look at hindenburg research do we believe that they are simply weeding out the weak players who are taking this quick spac route to market on the stock market or do we believe they're just out to make money unscrupulously I think it's a combination of the two. I think it's a really tricky um, sort of line. I mean, if they tried this on Tesla two years ago, it would have worked on Tesla because they, they had all pre-order book and people uh, didn't have to put much money down and people would speculatively put money down and, and not, you know, and decide at the last minute whether they wanted a car. Now, I'm sure that went on. It didn't make up the bulk of their orders because the bulk of their orders went through. But it, it may well have made up some of them and you could have made a case. People were ejected from Tesla as not being good enough and they went off to start their own companies or they left Tesla. And so there would have been people you could have interviewed who said, no, it's not going to work. Are they really getting to the heart of, some, of, of a con or are they just bringing down anybody to do with clean energy? Because if they're just bringing down anyone to clean energy, let's take them to hell because they, yeah. they need to be caught and they need to be stopped. Yeah, so I think it's something we really need to keep an eye on because I think what Hindenburg have probably really noticed is the, and rightfully noticed, is the amount of excitement we're seeing from investors around clean energy. And because of that, we've got so many startups coming, almost like the dot-com boom, where you've got so many companies coming up, several who indeed won't have necessarily the right credentials to be going forward. And we obviously, we will see a lot of casualties in the clean energy transition going forward. Um, and I think Lordstown, probably more so than Nikola, are actually showing flags that they could be on those companies. I mean, they've been very much lobbying to get these pre-orders in there. I mean, they paid a consulting group loads of money to pull in the 100,000 orders. All the while, the directors of the company are actually offloading their stock. So there's a lot of, yeah, I mean, as I said before, there's a lot of question marks around it. I think Hindenburg, they're not trying to take down the energy transition, but I think they are trying to... Well, that, that's legitimate. If they're, if they're making money out of these sudden increases in value and then sudden decreases in value, that's fine. That's legitimate. And it, with Nikola... I think what we've got to say is it became a new company the day after Trevor Milton left. 
And they had to go through and rethink, well, where are we now? What orders have we lost? What are we on track for? What have we got to drop? What can we afford to do? And so they're now definitely going to do something with the, the rump of what's left. And and, they, and it's and it's rooted in reality because they've had a new CEO. Perhaps they've done the world some good there by saving Nicola. But it, it's, it's just a matter of we don't know their motive because we don't know how much money they've made. And they're not going to tell you how much money they've made out of shorting these stocks. No, exactly. And I think that's that's the thing. I think we need to. Yeah, it's it's very worthwhile looking at all of these um, these short positions on an individual basis and actually making sure that the claims they're making are substantial. Yeah. And, and if, if you know, I've seen this situation before. People short stocks. Everyone goes along with it. Yeah, yeah, they all make money. And then and then suddenly they get one wrong and they're on like a pack of wolves and they sue them to death because they hate them fundamentally for screwing up the stock market. Let's see. I mean, we just keep an eye on them. Uh, and listen to what they say, make sure that we're getting reports from them. And where we don't think they're right, you know, we need to say so. But uh, we also should be like them. We should be exploring these companies and we should be interviewing ex-employees. We should be talking to anyone who's suddenly gone from one billion valuation to 20 billion on the back of a SPAC. We need to question whether they're, they're ripping the guts out of the energy transition or whether they are real prospects to become the Amazon of the of this this uh, generation of technology. Um, and I was going to say, Andres, uh, uh, yeah, are, Andres, are solar thermal heaters old and boring? Discuss. Well, in my opinion, most of them are. But there's a new type which isn't wimpy and can reach much higher temperatures. It's from this Swiss startup called TVP Solar. And they have figured out how to build their solar thermal heaters with a vacuum inside, including a pump system that just maintains the vacuum. And obviously a vacuum is a very, very good insulator. So it doesn't constantly radiate heat the moment it's warmer than the surroundings. And so they they can put it in uh, North European sunlight and it can easily get above 100 degrees in one of those. And that makes it useful for a lot of different industrial purposes. That really changes the calculus for, for how much market, how much of a market there is for, for the product, for, for the company, uh, but also for how you will decarbonize a, a lot of these industries. Because if you try to use renewables to provide industrial heat, well, first you're, you're doing a power conversion from wind or solar to electricity, and then you're doing another one from electricity to heat. So there's, there's some loss. And I think if you have a good product like these vacuum containing solar heaters, then then you can just go directly from the raw material, the natural resource, the sunlight, to heat. And so there's there's less loss involved. This could be how a lot of industries de- power their, their, their heat needs instead of... Uh, as long as it's up to 200 degrees Celsius and not beyond. I mean, when we get to steel and uh, cement, you're looking at... 1600 1450 you're looking at very high temperatures which which need some kind of uh, thermal generation that's beyond probably solar there must be many others that don't or that are halfway there or 200 degrees is, is, is a good amount let's tell you um i live in a little village in um in the cotswolds and we have a, a local swimming pool and it's a heated swimming pool is out in the open and we wondered how they heated it and uh, the engineer who runs it look showed me he said it's solar um, I, I said, well, what, what do you do with the electricity? So there's no electricity. It's a 1980s solar thermal system that's still working. And they they said they have to 
uh, be very careful it doesn't all the water doesn't evaporate in the solar panels because it turns to steam and um, and they lose it so they have to be careful it doesn't go over 100 degrees but certainly they um, you know for a 1980s design none of the advantages of what you're talking about in uh, TBB solar but clearly they're right you know if, if you can heat a swimming pool in winter with a handful of thermal solar panels that were built in 1980 you can do a lot with something that's um, that's that's purpose built the problem is getting is that every time they've got a valid use case that it's a project it's not a technology that can catch fire they, they basically have got to convince a load of developers can you use this can you drop this into your process mm. it's going to take time it's going to take a, a lot of years I mean, they will still be growing in 10 years, I'm sure. It's whether they can license it to someone who's already big and then just support them. But I mean, that will be worth just put a note in your diary a year from now, give them a call. Let's see. Let's see how many more deals they've signed. Well, I think they said they'd be uh, announcing some deals um, in, in a couple of countries in the coming months. So we'll we'll mm-hmm. find out. I want to take you back, uh, Simon. One, I just I, I know this uh, this was a research piece that I, I did on renewables. It was it was a really interesting study. I wanted to know what the future price of both solar and wind were going to be. Okay. And and I wondered why the, the IEA is so bad at forecasting. There's something that Harry highlights in a later article. And I came across this thing called um, Wright's Law, which is, is basically there's a, that, that for every technology that is go, going through a learning curve, and this was a first... Uh, advanced on uh, when aeroplanes suddenly became mass produced uh, and and we have the foundations for Boeing and companies like that there's a set amount of cut in in costs every time the um, marketplace doubles in size given that we've done a forecast doubling in size we knew where where solar and renewables and wind were going to be by 2050 it was an opportunity to say, well, okay, well, what would that imply for pricing, uh, applying this rule? And so I applied the rule, we, we drew the graphs, and it is quite staggering. You end up coming from the the mid-30s or $40 per megawatt hour down to around 10 or, or 16, depending on which of the two technologies you talk about, come 2050. And that this, if you then imagine it, uh, well, what's what's happening to gas? What's happening to coal? Of course, these are flat lines. Have been flat lines for many, many years. So, at the point that you cross them, in the last two or three years, you cross the flat lines, which are the um, the, the levelized cost of energy of these other static technologies. Um, yeah, there's a lot of debate and um, uncertainty. But once you've slipped 10, 15, 20, 30 percent below and keep going down in price, this is definitely the right answer to forecasting prices in in solar and uh, wind. I I found two instances of papers written on it uh, pointing this out in the last year or so. And they um, they all seem to have been swallowed up by the community and the IEA doesn't get it at all. But this is this is the kind of price curves that we will be seeing into 2050. I, I just wanted to bring attention to that. 
these graphs, I'm looking here at the graphs of uh, of the, the forecast uh, levelized cost of energy for, for wind and solar. So and, and it does go down dramatically. So about Wright's law, I mean, how um, we, we know about Moore's law. Why? Why is Wright's law hasn't been on the radar? Well, because it was started in the airplane industry. And, and, and in fact, if you go into it now, it became um, a, a teachable module by uh, the Boston Consulting Group All right. uh, at some point. And then you basically say, what was the price in 2010? What was the price in 2011? And you draw the curve mm-hmm. and you say, right, when did the marketplace double? Okay. And then you get to the point where it doubles, which back then would have been every two or three years, mm. and say, right, well, what's the price um, degradation? Oh, it's 36%. Okay, mm-hmm. next time it doubles... You know, it was in the middle of the, 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 the 2010s. And you go, oh, it's the same number. So, and then, then the doubling happens further and further apart. So it's a very, it's not a straight line. It's, just, it's an asymptotic curve that, that, that uh, eventually gets to flat. Um, because we forecast to 2050, we know when it doubles. We know right. when it doubles again, and we know right. when it doubles again. So we can actually go in and drop those prices in. Okay. And th- that's that makes perfect sense. And that they talk in about learning curve being three or four different uh, learnings. You know, that, that if you're learning it entirely on your own, just by just by manufacturing, or if you're learning how to get the market to absorb it, or if you're learning ab- about actually installing it, or if you're doing all of those things at the same time, you're finding little efficiencies at each step of the way. That's the theory. Uh, and I just we just put it into the 2010 to 2020 numbers and it hits perfectly. Right. So it's forecast the history perfectly. It should forecast the future perfectly. Uh, Harry, why does the International Energy Agency, the IEA, get this wrong time after time? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I couldn't re- yes, yeah, a huge question. I, mean, I couldn't resist writing about it when I when I read the um the old 2021 because it's just the same mistakes the IEA is making. Year on year, I think we've mentioned it in previous podcasts. I think when you've got so many analysts in a room all bickering over the same thing, you end up over what to change, you end up changing nothing at all. So I think that's that's part of the problem at the IEA. The IEA was set up to save the oil industry. And I think that's becoming crystal clear now that they're they're very much on the side of protecting their old allies. I think that's they'd always want to steer away from that as sort of a public image, but it does seem very much the case. I mean, they're more bullish on oil in this report that they've released than most of the oil majors. So um, I think that's that's pretty telling. Um, essentially, what they've done in this report is predicted that we won't pass peak oil until the back end of the decade. So not, not until after 2026, which is when the sort of cast off of this report is. Um, so that what they're expecting is to see growth from 100 million barrels per day in 2019 to 104.1 million barrels per day in 2026. So it's not it's not huge growth, it's not growth like we've seen over the past few years, but it is still growth. And what they're anticipating is that the progress we see in terms of the shift towards electric vehicles in developed countries is offset by economic growth, sort of dirty economic growth, I suppose, in, in developing countries. I think what they're neglecting there is the fact that a lot of the development of these countries will actually be focused around these new technologies like wind and solar, which, as Peter just pointed out, are now lower cost than fossil fuels uh, to the point where that we won't see the same amount of um, emissions sort of paired with gro- um, economic growth that we've seen in the past. Um, so I think that's something that the IEA has potentially overlooked. 
Um, I think the, the weird thing about the report is that the IEA seems to be almost becoming quite self-aware in the sense that it's saying that all of this sort of market uncertainty will eventually result in a disparity between supply and demand and then sort of um, price collapses basically and, it, and it's saying that there will have to be these, these shutdowns in refineries over the few uh, next few years because of the long-term sort of shift away from oil but they haven't noticed that in their actual demand fig- uh, in their outlook figures next year they'll be saying a, a reduced demand for oil in the same sense that every year they've had to update their expectations for solar power wind power while downgrading sort of things that actually would help the fossil fuel industry like carbon capture for example I, I, I agree with everything you said, and the graph just shows it. I mean, the graph you show is the growth in um, annual PV additions and what they forecast the growth to be. And they're, it's, they're, their forecasts are awful. I mean, they're the exact opposite of what happens. But the motive, the motive isn't that they uh, want oil to do well. The motive is that they, I, I believe, these people have this worldview of oil and can't shake it. They, they can't believe it's going to change. And, and I think having a worldview that's wrong is is not. You're not guilty of anything. You're just apart from being unable to absorb a new a new uh, paradigm. And, and I, I, I think it's just that they've been trained as oil specialists, and they they have no solar specialists. No people who've made all their money out of solar working on the team. And if they have, they're ignoring them because they're, they're a minority. And what, what they need to do here is just have someone. It, it, it took me all of all of an hour to find the formula, test the formula for the fall in prices of, uh, of solar. And, and they should be doing that. The um, I want to throw one more thing at this. One of the things that's really obvious when you do a forecast for electric vehicles is the assumption is that self-driving autonomous vehicles do not make an appearance inside the forecast because the moment they do make an appearance the number of cars on the road changes dramatically if you have self-driving automatic taxis that you could order via an app you don't need to buy a car and the cost per for, for getting around per month is less than the cost of leasing a car significantly less the ownership models for cars are going to change dramatically and suddenly and overnight and so something like one fifth the number of cars will be sold once that uh, has taken hold if that happens none of them will use petrol and if that happens the oil is over so much quicker um, and and i think no one you know we could do a forecast uh, saying in five years time um, there are robo taxis in five continents and if there are this is what happens to the numbers the thing is no one's doing that forecast because they're terrified of it solar will become cheaper over time it has to but its ups and downs are worth recording and you've you've definitely found the policy silicon market is going down as it needs to go up triggered by a few fires and a realization they can almost ransom the whole of the industry so you go ahead yeah, well, um, back in the middle of last year, actually, there were some accidents at polysilicon factories, and then the, which are mostly in China now. And so the Chinese government stepped in and forced them to shut down even more to uh, check that the safety was properly in place. That's kind of old news by now. And it was expected that in 2021, from the start of 2021, it would continue declining. Uh, so it spiked back, way back in July, and then it started declining by a few percentage points each 
each month. And, and you'd think that the start of the year would be a bit of a slow period since typically solar is at the busiest in, in the fourth quarter because various countries will have subsidy deadlines or at least a couple of them. But now it, it seems like the solar industry has just gone into overdrive this year. We saw like um, Bloomberg say that there could be 209 gigawatts installed, which I don't think is possible because of the polysilicon uh, limits on, on production, because it takes 18 months to build a new factory. Places like South Korea have basically have mostly given up on, on their polysilicon or, or they've tried to shift it to Malaysia. Um, the Chinese are just hoovering it up. But those new factories only come online at the end of this year. And there's so much demand that it's not just there's a shortage of polysilicon. It's almost that there's a shortage of everything because there's so much demand for everything. So you've got flat glass uh, had a price spike almost as uh, basically as big as polysilicon. It doubled in cost. Um, silver paste, which is uh, becoming a more and more significant portion of solar module cost in terms of raw materials, that's going up. And and uh, I saw one analyst, I think Matt Watson, someone in the US, analyzed that it was uh, the solar industry already uses 10% of the of global silver output. So if the solar in industry doubles, then it's 20%. Or if it doubles again, it's it's 40%. And then you, you probably have to expand silver mining or you have to reduce how much silver you use. Uh, but there is... I think that's the key, mm. is, is that this brings you to the learning curve. You know, okay... Silver is the best th thing for it. We need the second best thing for it. And we need to design that in now because it's going to give us financial relief from the increasing price of silver. They could use copper or aluminium, but I think they really don't want to. I think it will just end up using, they'll just end up using less silver and switching to, I mean, heterojunction actually uses more silver. I, it, yeah, like you say, it'll be very interesting. Or the, go the Tesla route, you know, buy a silver mining concern to make sure that you've got your supply. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it takes us full circle back to Fortescue entering the silver mining business. I mean, uh, the, Tesla just did that thing with um, um, nickel, you know, securing its rights um, to nickel by doing a partnership with the nickel mining firm in Australia. So that's the type of deal that, that keeps you bringing your prices down because you, you have to do deals like that. So some of the smartest brains in the world are suddenly going to look at the, the uh, supply lines and and they're going to come up with innovative ways of making uh, of making solar get cheaper, even as its costs are rising. And 2021 is going to be a very interesting year for the prices of solar panels and how much is supplied because it seems in, in one way it's contradictory to say well the prices are going up but also more people want to buy them so we expect a record year and sort of for, for supply and the prices will only come down later on if you'll ask an economist he'll give you a he'll say supply and demand prices of the, of the finished modules will go up that's not what will happen because hmm. people's expectation is that they're cheaper than last year and if they're not i'll go somewhere else so they've got increasing costs, <clears throat> decreasing revenue. Uh, the only surviving, the way to survive is do twice as much. I mean, it's it's not easy being a, a solar solar uh, company, uh, Chinese or otherwise. Yeah, I, I saw that reported in, in the Chinese media. They, If they raise their prices, then the projects just get delayed or not purchased. So they can't raise their prices. And right. some are even running into loss rather than just, they can't just shut down. No, I absolutely believe that, yeah.